Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah 9. This is one of those texts that's either way too long or way too short. So we're going to take the short person part today and then the longer portion next week, at least divide it into two. We'll look this morning at Nehemiah 9, verses 1 to 3. Although we'll figure a way not to make it so short. The Army has used many recruiting slogans over the years, but the most memorable and the most enduring, for they used it over 20 years, is the challenge to young men and women to be all you can be in the Army. It's interesting to think why that was so successful for so long. I think it was simply this. In the hearts and minds of many young people is this gnawing suspicion that there's got to be more to life than this, whatever this is at that moment. Which makes me wonder if the rest of us might not have the same gnawing suspicion. I think I do. I feel it for myself. I feel it for our church, for our life together as God's people. There's got to be more for us than what we've seen so far. The people of Nehemiah's day seem to have felt the same thing. And so here at the beginning of chapter 9, there is a hunger driving God's people. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let me read it, the first three verses. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and, their wicked, and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. We'll stop there. I'd like to suggest just one general point today, and then we'll break it down into five specifics. So however you want it, this is five points, or this is six points, or this is one with five subpoints. However you want to do it, that's one general point, five specifics. The general point is this. Pursue spiritual renewal. Pursue spiritual renewal. It's an exhortation. Pursue spiritual renewal. We live in a day of instant gratification, but that's probably just as well so, because so many of the fads we pursue are not really worthy of any prolonged interest. But unfortunately, our habit of momentary pursuits of passing fancies has invaded our relationship to God. We get excited for a moment. We have some religious experience that feels good. We can pick up a Christian book and read the first couple of chapters, but we soon get bored or distracted. We forget all about it and go on about our business unchanged. We invest very little. We get very little in return and conclude there is very little in our spiritual life which is worthy of further attention. But here we see something different in Nehemiah 9. Here we see people pursuing spiritual renewal, going beyond the first inclination, the passing fancy, and setting their hearts to know God. And in doing so, they give us an example to follow. So let's look at the specifics. Here in verses 1 to 3, there are at least five uh, specific ways in which they pursued renewal. And they're not hard to pick out. It's just going from one to the next to the next. First, they invested time. 
invested time. These chapters are full of calendar notations, all in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, the month of Tishri, which falls in like October uh, in the fall in our calendar. On the first day of the month, as we read back in chapter 8, all the people gathered and heard the reading of the law from a platform, elevated platform over by the water gate in the city. And the people hearing the word of God began to weep over their sin, but they were told not to weep, but to celebrate instead, for it was Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. That was on the first day of the month. On the second day of the month, we read in, in, in 8.13, the leaders gathered for further study of God's word, preparing for the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, and came to realize they had missed a lot about what that was supposed to look like. The events on the 10th of the month are not mentioned here, but the 10th of Tishri is the Day of Atonement. We know that God's people celebrated that. Then from the 15th to the 22nd of that month, as we saw last time, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, an eight-day celebration full of worship and sacrifices offered while the people lived in temporary little shanties that they had built out of branches that they cut out in the, in the woods. And now as we begin this chapter, it's the 24th day of that seventh month. Now some scholars insist that all these things could not have happened at the same time in the same month. They think this must uh, 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 have accounts from all different events all brought together. But these dates are specifically mentioned in our instruction. Indeed, verse 1 says specifically, it's the same month. Now you would think that after all these other things and after an eight-day a celebration of the feast during which people were basically camping out and then going to church all day, you would think that they would be ready to go home. But instead, now that the required holy feast days were over, they hung around for an extra day, the 23rd of the day of the month, and then they gathered the next day to pursue some more God's renewal. You see, they were not just filling the squares of worship, doing their religious duties, and then getting on with their real life. God was moving in the midst of these people, causing them to seek his face, to long for him, to earnestly desire his renewal. It had been over three weeks since they first felt the sting of conviction as God's word was read from the the high platform. But in spite of all the events... Their sense of that need had not subsided. And so here they come again, investing time to pursue God's renewal. And what about us? That twinge of conscience that your relationship to God ought to amount to more than it does. When are you going to check that out? You see, there's no magic here. If we want to know all that God has for us, if we want to see his renewing work in our life, we must invest the time to pursue it. Our convenience Christianity will never know much of God's presence and power. I'm not denying that God works sovereignly to work in our lives how and when he pleases I'm just reiterating Jesus' warning that the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, we might say the tyranny of the urgent, 
tend to choke out the word of God, which he's planted in us before it takes root and bears fruit. They invested time. Secondly, they humbled themselves. They humbled themselves. According to verse 1, they fasted, wore sackcloth, and put dust on their heads. Admittedly, these are cultural practices that are foreign to us. These are expressions of grief which seem really overdone to our Western ears. But the reality which drove those expressions must not be foreign to us. These people were humbling themselves in God's presence. They were pointedly coming to him, not in the splendor of their togetherness, but with brokenness and contrition. Centuries earlier, David had written repeatedly about such a humble approach to God. We read it in Psalm 51, where he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We read it again in Psalm 34. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit. And through Isaiah, the Lord proclaims the same thing in Isaiah 66. This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles at my word. What a contrast to the way we tend to seek God. We tend to seek the Lord like we're ordering takeout. Uh, I'll have one order of blessing, please, with just a touch of duty. But make sure it doesn't have any Tuesday or Thursday on it. Oh, and I, and I could use a good seminar, maybe on something on self-esteem. Our pastor gets so heavy sometimes. We call this consumer Christianity. Christians picking and choosing what they like of the faith, of the churches, of churches, of ministries, of pastors. Too often we're not desperate for God at all. We're simply managing this religious aspect of our life like we manage everything else. That was not what was happening with the residents of Nehemiah's Jerusalem. They were hungry for God. They were broken before him. They were humiliated in his presence. They were willing to, con- to, to, to concede their dignity and their public image with sackcloth and ashes and dust thrown on their heads in order to pursue his renewal. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Because those are the ones in whom God will be working. We want to pursue spiritual renewal. It will take not only time. It demands that we come with humility. Third thing. They separated from the world. They separated from the world. Verse 2, those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners. Now, this was not some form of racial discrimination that was going on here. This was simply a recognition of the fact that the renewal they sought from God, was they sought as the people of God. It had nothing to do with those who worshipped other gods. This was not some kind of social event to which they invited all their friends. They separated themselves from everyone and everything in order to pursue knowing God. 
Nowadays, we're really afraid of the accusation that we're exclusive or intolerant. The cardinal sins of our everything has a, everyone has a right to do his own thing kind of society. But God calls his people, still calls his people, to holiness. That very word means separation, differentiation, distinction, peculiarity. Not separation based on class or race or ethnic background, but separation from the world to God. This is not a call to dress in some way that's out of style or speak only churchy language. This is a call to be what God wants you to be no matter how much it puts you at odds with the world around you. This is a call to love God and what he loves rather than have your mind set on the treasures of this world. This is a call to follow the Lord's agenda rather than what's considered normal in your culture. Every parent raising kids knows that peer pressure is our greatest enemy. We have a daily battle to see our children conform to the things we know are good and the, and the things we expect of them rather than being conformed to what their friends think is cool. But doesn't God have the same problem with us? It's not that we want to totally ignore him. We just don't want him to ever embarrass us in front of our friends to ask us to do something that might make our friends think we're some kind of fanatic. Oh, dear people, give it up. Give up the thinking that you can please God and please the world too. Both mentally and practically, we must separate ourselves from our commitment to be like everyone else. That's the powerful instruction of Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you would pursue renewal, you must part company with your allegiance to the world. Then in verse 2, there's a fourth specific in this pursuit of renewal. They confessed their sins. According to verse 2, they stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. Actually, confession of sin was the primary uh, purpose for this whole gathering. And in the rest of this chapter, which we'll look at next time, that will be our major focus, exactly how they confess their sins. But this morning, let's just note uh, what this one verse points out about their confession, for it's quite different than what we tend to envision as confession of sin. They did not just confess a particular evil thought or unkind word or deed. Though they certainly may have confessed those things too. But what we're told is that they confessed their sins specifically in continuity with the wicked ways of their fathers. What does that mean? Are we to pass the buck and blame our parents then for all of our failures? That's actually pretty widespread today. That clearly does not have very much biblical support, however. So what does it mean to confess sin in continuity with our ancestors? Well, it means that we come to view our whole society from God's perspective as strayed from him. It means to admit we've inherited wickedness And it's not been purged out of us. We're that way too. It means our problem, our need for God's renewal, 
is that our whole society, our traditions, our cultural givens, the way we think, the roots of our education, our value system, our philosophies of life, our expectations for ourselves and for our world, have all been taught to exclude God. We have learned to function without any reference to him. Even we who acknowledge God's existence and believe in him tend to share in the wickedness of our culture in that we continue to keep God in his place. That is the place we've assigned to him, which is the place of irrelevance. Irrelevance. We can live and do everything we do regardless of whether God exists or not. He's not a player. But if we would seek God's renewal, we must begin to examine and confess the sinful roots, asking God to invade the very depths of our cultural and religious heritage. Finally, there's a fifth specific in this pursuit of God's renewal give attention to God's word. Give attention to God's word. Through the benefits of medical science, we have generally learned now that drinking some herbal brew is not going to fix your ruptured appendix. And rubbing the roots of some exotic plant on your skin is not going to heal your broken arm. God has blessed us with the ability to address the causes of our medical problems in ways that actually bring healing. Unfortunately, sometimes it seems we're regressing in regard to our religious practices. We're talking about renewal this morning. Hey, everybody talks about renewal. But many of the the approaches to renewal in the church seem to be more like medical folklore than real healing. So there's this huge fascination with things like the forms and style of music we use. The forms, or do we have the exact correct form of the order of worship? The bringing of art and drama into our worship service. People's need for more participation to feel part of the church. Addressing people's felt needs. Or having a coffee bar. I'm for that. We can talk about any of that. But those things are band-aids on broken arms. They will never produce significant renewal for they are not powerful enough to affect change. God has made it crystal clear where renewing power comes from. It comes from his word in the hands of his spirit. So in Genesis 1, the first page of your Bible, we read in the beginning when there was nothing, God spoke. Let there be light. And there was light. As Hebrews 11 says that the universe was created by the word of God. In Jeremiah 23, the Lord compares his word to a fire that ignites and refines and consumes, and to a hammer which reduces solid rock to a pile of dust. In Isaiah 55, the Lord promises that his word which he sends out 
always accomplishes his plans and never returns to him empty-handed until it has set the mountains to singing and the trees applauding. And in Hebrews 4, the Spirit says, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any sword. It is able to discern and divide the thoughts and the intentions of the heart and to lay everything bare, exposed, open to the Lord. If we would seek renewal in our relationship with the Lord, we need to be exposed to the power of God's word. That's what was beginning to happen in Nehemiah's Jerusalem. Verse 3, we read, They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. This is not the beginning of this. Sounds like chapter 8. Where on the first day of the month, three weeks earlier, these same people stood from daybreak till noon to listen to the word of God being read. That's where that desire for spiritual renewal began. And then on the second day of the month, their leaders gathered for more in-depth study about, about their worship. And now they stand and listen to the scriptures for about another three hours. And when their worship and confession of sin begins in these next verses in this chapter, it will start in Genesis and it will go throughout the whole biblical story. These people were pursuing, re, 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 pursuing renewal by giving attention to God's word. And so I call us to the same pursuit conducted in the same way. We're so inclined to try to whip up some emotion and call it renewal. But what we need is something much stronger than warm feelings. The church is not a theater, not a concert, not a circus, not entertainment any of which might be tailored to um, address people's taste and thereby be made successful. But that's not what we are. We are God's people, and what we need is God working in us, conforming us to his design and filling us with his presence, and that he does through the ministry of his word by the power of his spirit. That begins when we give attention to what he has spoken. Ronald Meredith, in a book, Hurrying Big for Little Reasons, tells of a significant event he witnessed one quiet night. It's an interesting story for us as we close. He says, suddenly, out of the night came the sound of wild geese flying. I ran to the house and breathlessly announced the excitement I felt. What is to compare with wild geese across the moon? It might have ended there, except for the sight of our tame mallard ducks on the pond. They heard the wild call they had once known. The honking out of the night sent little arrows prompting deep into their wild yesterdays. Their wings fluttered a feeble response. The urge to fly, to take their place in the sky for which God made them, was sounding in their feathered breasts. But they never raised from the water. No, the matter had been settled long ago. 
The corn of the barnyard was too tempting. Now their desire to fly only made them uncomfortable. For you see, temptation is always enjoyed at the price of losing the capacity for flight. Folks, God has called us to soar in our Christianity, which is much more than we normally see going on in churches. But we will never know it by sitting here comfortably, fitting God into our worldly agenda. If we want to know the fullness of God's renewing power, we need to pursue it like these people did. And that means invest the time. Humble yourself. Separate from the world. Confess your sin, even the sinful patterns you inherited, and give attention to God's word. And then ask the Lord, as Keith Green did in his song, Oh, Lord, Please light the fire that once burned bright and clear. Replace the lamp of my first love, which burns in holy fear. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so respectable in our faith. And we don't want to say that's nothing, for we've come a long ways. And yet when we really read your word, we realize maybe we haven't come near where we should have come. Father, I know as I watch these uh, videos on Wednesday nights, I see these, your people in other places. I wonder if we're playing games here. Our faith is so meager compared to some of what we see. Father, renew us, we pray. Renew me. Renew this church. Work in us the desire to give attention to these things that matter to you. And then do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. By the work of your word and your spirit, transform us, we pray. Restore our first love for you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.